You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. My name is Eric Kahn, and today we have a very special guest. We have Pastor Jared Sparks. Jared, it's good to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. We're looking forward to it. And Jared, just so readers kind of get to know you a little bit, or listeners, that is, um, tell us a little bit about your ministry. You're a pastor at Christ Church in Carbondale, Illinois, but you also have a ministry to pastors. So tell us just a little bit about that, where people can find more information. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, like you said, my name is Jared. I'm a pastor, one of the pastors at Christ Church, Carbondale, and we've been, been in Carbondale for about five years, and my wife and I are from Southern Illinois, so the, the region is familiar to us, but we've been at our local church for about five years. We planted that church, and we've got a great group, great plurality of elders, and it's just been a lot of fun. And out of that, as I've been doing bivocational and trivocational work, really was just thinking through what I could do on the side, and I thought I would formalize what I'd already been doing, which is working with pastors, helping pastors, and, and I just had so many guys that had been coming to me and talking with me. Uh, older and younger. And so I'd been working as a biblical counselor at a counseling center. And I was just talking to my wife and I, I thought, well, why don't I just formalize this and, and go on my own? And I started the Shepherd's Cook, which is uh, not, a, not that I'm a professional health giver. I'm not a mental health professional or anything, but I provide uh, care coaching resources and events for pastors. And, and part of that is the podcast, which is the Shepherd's Cook podcast. And uh, then we do events, a spring event and a fall event. And uh, throughout the year, I do some coaching with pastors and stuff like that. And so it's just been a lot of fun for me personally. And really, Eric, it's developed into uh, kind of a pastor courage ministry where yeah. what we've seen in 2020 is, is really bubbled to the surface issues in both the church and in the pastorate. And so I've been wanting to come alongside and re- remind people of Jesus, remind people of what pastoral ministry is according to the scriptures. And it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I would encourage guys to check that out. And that is all included in the show notes. But is that Shepherd's Crook? Is it .com? Yeah, it's, it's the shepherdscrook.co. And you can find it there. Or you can just open up your podcast. If you're looking for the podcast, you know, you can just find it in the, you know, any podcast provider. You can just search for it and you can find it. But the shepherdscrook.co is the website. Awesome. Yeah. And again, we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. But definitely encourage our listeners to check that out been very beneficial to me, obviously as a pastor, um, but also just as a man in the church, understanding some of the issues that are going on, um, as well as being encouraged. So for this show, I want to talk to you, Jared, about the book Wild at Heart. You and I have connected over this recently. Um, I did a podcast on it, kind of reviewing John Eldridge's book, which was very popular among men in the church. So for those who haven't listened, I'd encourage them to check that out. It's up on Patreon now. Um, But Jared, I kind of want to get your take. So especially as a pastor, one of the roles that you're given and that all pastors are given in the church is to guard the flock and to help them grow in things like discernment. So as we start talking about this book, I want to get sort of an overall like pastorally, not just this book, but any book. How do you shepherd your church through it? Because any book is usually going to have positive things and it's going to have things that people need to weed through. So how do you start with your, with your flock? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think with our church, what I want to do is recommend as many resources as possible. And so as I'm reading throughout the year, and as our, our elder team is reading throughout the year, 
we're accumulating a list of resources that we can, I mean, literally give ratings to. And so when I'm doing personal reading or reading for the church, I, I have a log of everything that I've read back since 2011. And so in that log, I've got every book listed and then I've got a little rating to the side. And I just know as I'm reading those books, what I'm going to recommend to our people and what I'm not going to recommend. And so in our, you know, as we walk in on a Sunday morning for Lord's Day gathering, you got our little resource table, which is just a tiny little, little table, but we've got a list right. of resources for our people. And so as I'm, I'm thinking through, okay, is this going to be good for people? Is it not going to be for our people? I want to give as many recommendations or warnings as I can to our people. And so if there's something that's just, and it's really popular, uh, then I'll just tell our people, hey, you just want to avoid this. This isn't good. It's not helpful. And so I, I just want to recommend as many good resources as I can. And you know what I've seen are really for our church, man, our church really responds to that and they'll buy what's recommended. And so if I, I mean, I, the best way I've found a group of people is just hey, recommend what's the, what's the good stuff and give them the good stuff. Yeah, that that's fantastic. So that brings up the question, how did Wild at Heart rate and what, what was the word to your people on this book? <laughs> Uh, well, I would not recommend Wild at Heart to the average churchman, uh, the average layperson. I would not recommend the book um, for several reasons. I thought you did a fantastic job, by the way, in your review of the book. I thought the way you categorized it and, and said the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever your phraseology was, it was a very helpful review, and I agreed with much of it. Uh, I wouldn't recommend the book, and I think, you know, I, I'll get to that, but there, there are big, big things that he, uh, that he misses. Uh, yeah, I, de I definitely didn't recommend and wouldn't recommend Wild at Heart to the average man. I enjoyed reading it. I just wouldn't recommend it to, you know, the average guy. Yeah, I, I, and that was very similar to my take on it that, um, yeah, there were some, there was a few good things that, that and we'll delve into those in just a second, uh, but it would be really hard especially not knowing where a person's at without having to being able to sit down with every single person and kind of work through those issues. It's definitely, and I said the same thing. I, I'm not sure that I would recommend it um, at that point. So it's interesting too. One, one of the places I started with the review was actually taking a look at some of how the conservative reformedish pastors had responded to the book, which in large part was just to kind of scoff at it and be like, I can't believe this is popular. Um, I kind of feel like some of them made it seem like you were stupid if you liked it, um, which I didn't, I mean, I didn't quite understand that. So I'm curious right. your take. My biggest takeaway at that point was, look, this is an opportunity. Clearly there's something happening in the church. Clearly there's something that John is right about. And clearly there's an opportunity for these pastors to say, hey, this part's right but let me take you the full length to something biblical. So my question to you is, do you think it was wise of, you know, pastorally just to say, you know, this is dumb. How could anybody like this? And then why do you think it was so popular? I don't think it was wise. And I know that Chalice, and he's reviewed several books. Tim Chalice has re revealed several. And I can't remember if you actually mentioned him by name or not, but yeah. his review, his review uh, of, all its works. It's just to mock and ridicule. And I understand, I really do understand where Chalice is coming from, but I think the appeal of the book uh, was certainly there. I mean, it sold millions of copies. I think it was a New York Times bestseller. And it came really at the end of a 10-year run of some pretty large men's ministry. It was, you know, Promise Keepers was in the middle 
of the 90s through the late 90s and started to fizzle out a little bit. And then this book hit. And I think that the book captured a few things that the church had, that had really, um, really failed to articulate for, for a very long time. And so I think it, it recognized rightly some serious problems. And the problem, I think, is that it gave, you know, effeminate answers to masculine problems, but it did identify some, you know, legitimate problems that all the guys were looking at each other who were reading this book at small groups throughout, you know, Wednesday night Bible studies throughout all the country from denomination to denomination. They're looking at each other and they're like, yeah, this is a serious issue for real. Everything is just feminized. There's potpourri everywhere. There's, it's just, what is going on? And so that book did it, did it, it awakened men. It gave men permission. I think specifically there's a line in there in the book that it's like, I want to give permission to be a man, that it's okay to be a man. And then it gave for a lot of guys, misguided as it may, might be, it gave them some sort of mission. It gave them a, some sort of direction. In fact, man, I was reading a book that you probably would like. It was a, 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 by a professor named Dr. Bracey Hill. Huh. And he wrote a book called uh, Nimrod, and it was a, a series of articles about hunting from the scriptures. He's oh, a professor down, at, down in Baylor. And in that, he did a survey of all these men's ministries, like Christian hunting ministries across the country. And he was asking these guys, you know, what, what led you to start this ministry? And why, why did you start this hunting cabin and this hunting retreat? And, all, you know, all this. and almost every single guy in these case studies said, I read Wild at Heart, and I read the line, don't ask the world. What, don't ask the question, what does the world need? Ask, what makes me come alive? Because what the world needs is men who have come fully alive. I think you referenced that. Yep, yep. Um, and, and so it spoke through story to a group of men who were just seeing a problem and they couldn't put their finger on it. And it exposed those same problems that everybody was seeing. And it didn't give great answers, but it did expose the problem. It's like it peeled up the rock and you got yep. to see, here's the dark underbelly of the effeminate church. And, and all these dudes are like, yep, this is an issue. And I see a problem, and now I've got some handles on how to talk about this problem. And so I think it just set people, a group of men, and did some really good things, to be honest. I think it did some really good things. Set a group of men, uh, really awakened them and set them on fire, and it didn't get the best answers, but it did set them on fire. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Uh, I, and I think the way I described it was, you know, the diagnosis in terms of looking at some of the problems is pretty accurate and helpful. The church, I think, really is effeminate. Um, but then, yeah, as we'll get into the prognosis uh, is where maybe some of this stuff really gets off track. So I want to kind of transition here. And I, I want to start by looking at the, the positive elements of the book. And in particular, just like, you know, we talked a little bit about, okay, the problem of effeminacy is real. But what are the things that you see in the book that you thought, wow, this is really, this is a positive thing or he's right about this? Well, I think he identifies a, you know, he talks about it in a really weird way. And this is, 90s men's ministry was really marked by this, yeah. of uh, talking, talking about father issues and trying to get through real issues, but doing it in like a psychological way and through, um, through really, I mean, it was like a group of men who were like, I am a man, I am a man, I am a man, who were sitting around, you know, talking to each other, who were, all had father wounds, trying to convince each other that they were really men that he really had what it took, you know, like I've got what it takes. But he did see that the baby boomer generation, that group of men, had, had dads who knew how to work hard, but because they went through the Great War, because they went through the Depression, because they went through the, the Second World War, they didn't know how to emotionally connect with their children. They didn't tell their kids, I love you. They didn't hug them. They didn't say, I'm proud of you. 
And if you look at a group of men like those baby, baby boomer men, like our, our age fathers, most of them, not all of them, most of them had dads that never told them they loved them. And they were just hurt and they were abused. Like my dad, for instance, was abused really in, in almost every way he could be abused. He had a terrible, my grandfather was a terrible man. And so when John wrote this book and got to the father wound chapter, the good thing is that he's recognized these dads were hurt by their, these guys were hurt by their dads. I mean, they, they experienced some really terrible things. But again, in the same way he was recognizing these issues with the effeminate church, he gave poor answers. But he was rightly identifying a problem. And so all these guys, I mean, they're bursting out in tears and hugging each other, again, in church rooms all over the country because they had been hurt by their dad. They, had, they had saw a dad who could work hard, but didn't know how to tell him they loved him. And, uh, and so I think that was another good thing. And I also think the, the wilderness motif that you identified as well, uh, to completely write off like what the Masculine Mandate, that book, The Masculine Mandate, had some really great things. Richard Phillips, I think, uh, wrote a great book with The Masculine Mandate. But um, he rightly corrected Eldridge's exegesis in, his, in The Masculine Mandate, like the first three chapters. But he didn't give Eldridge credit for recognizing this, this, this wilderness motif that you see all throughout the scriptures. I mean, you see it everywhere of, of people meeting with God, either outside of the camp. You see uh, Moses in the, in the wilderness. You see these themes of John the Baptist being in the wilderness and God telling him, you go preach in the wilderness. Don't go to the city center. You go to the trees. You know, go out, go out in the wilderness and preach. Right. And I'm going to send people out to you. I mean, that kind of busts up anything Tim, Tim Keller has ever said, really. Um, but it's like, go, you know, wait, did I hear you right, God? To go to the wilderness. And, and Eldridge recognized that there is something that, that awakens a man when you step out of domesticated life. And that's good. I think he hit the nail on the head on several big categories that men needed to hear. Yeah, I think those are really good points. So, so both on the wilderness issue, um, which again, you do, you see throughout scripture. But then also on the issue of uh, the disconnect between the, the boomer generation and the generation that, that followed um, a lot of the parenting issues, I think that's where, you know, look, a lot of, um, you know, post-World War II, that generation was largely responsible for fathering those who were raised in the 60s and 70s. Obviously, there's problems there, and uh, you see that on both sides. I think one thing is when church leaders today just kind of dismiss wild at heart. I think oftentimes what happens is it feels like they're saying those problems aren't real. Those issues aren't real. And so I, I find myself saying like, well, I definitely want to say to people, look, I understand why you resonated with this book um, because there are, there are real issues. And I know that kind of gets to something else, which is the, the red pill, the manosphere movement. I think one thing that's been really frustrated is, is a young man saying to pastors like, hey, I'm not getting practical skills on how to be a man in the world. And then pastors, kind of like what Phil Johnson did, they'll come back with, well, to be a real man is to be doctrinally sound. You need to listen to every John MacArthur sermon and you need to buy his commentaries and then you'll be a man. And it's kind of like, well, that also falls short. You know, that's not a complete picture of masculinity either. Mm -hmm. So I I, I want to ask this question as well. on that note, if pastors were doing the right thing, like they recognize these problems, um, you know, father, father wounds to some extent are real things um, and the need for authentic masculinity being taught. 
like, what do you envision as being like, what should they have done to give men a clear vision for masculinity? Right. Well, a lot of their solutions were rooted in story. And I think that's the, the fact that, you know, the apologetic of the day is story and emotional appeal. It's story and emotional, and that's, that's a product of and the things that I've heard from you and from uh, fathers, but the, the growing effeminacy of, of society, even really back to the Second Great Awakening, you can trace so much of this back to, uh, you know, things that, that Charles Finney was doing and from, uh, you know, really riling people up to pr- produce results through emotional appeal and feeling. And then where we're at today, you know, I think if pastors would have rooted their solutions more in the scriptures rather than in story, it would have been a whole lot more helpful. And I think that's the, the overarching problem of men's mm. ministry in the 90s is that they were able to connect with men through story, but weren't able to root men through the scriptures. Right. And so there was in this, this, this middle area of, again, being able to diagnose problems, but then tell men sappy stories and commote, you know, really connect with men in an emotional le- le- way to where they're sitting face-to-face crying to each other and you know, feeling deeply the wounds that they're walking around with. But then going to, what does your heavenly father have to say about this? What does God have to say about this? And that bedrock foundation that's so much bigger, which is, the, I mean, that's the era of Wild Heart. I mean, it goes back and forth from Braveheart to uh, Gladiator. And, you, you know, you, you lean in and you, you remember those movies and those scenes and you recognize, yeah, man, I do. I know what I felt like when Maximus said, are, are you not entertained? You know, you, you feel like you want to run through a brick wall. But movies aren't sustaining in the way the voice of the Father is. And if we're not going to the Scriptures and rooting our solutions in the Scriptures and the bedrock foundation of justification by faith in Christ alone, and that's what Eldridge misses on big time also. I mean, it's nowhere in Wild at Heart. You don't get a, a robust doctrine of justification in, justification in any of his books. And so you don't have that foundation of sonship. You know, we talk about being a son of living God. You can't understand adoption unless you understand justification. And likewise, you really can't understand justification if you, you need both justification and adoption. There's, there's out of balance uh, way that you can walk if you don't understand either of those. But if, if pastors would have been giving scriptures and rooting their solutions in the scriptures, I, I don't even think you would have needed the book Wild the Heart, to be honest. But because it was riddled with story and solutions were emotional appeal and, you know, and a sappy story, you get a book like, you know, Wild Heart that comes at 2001 and the men were ripe for it they were ready for it because they they were they were there they were prepared for it so if if pastors would have rooted their solutions in the scriptures rather than a story i think things would have been a little bit differently yeah i think that's a great take and and you mentioned like 90s men's ministries so the other one that i kind of connect with wild at heart in a sort of way is promise keepers oh yeah um just because they were good at like getting men riled up um, I had some family and friends who who really were big, you know, and the main the main poll, let's be honest, in Colorado at least was look, Bill McCartney is up there preaching Jesus, and that dude was right. he's a dynamite fire stick. I mean, he just even for me when he when he would talk, it was like, how can you not get sucked into this charisma and this? He's a magnetic right. personality. So then you go to Mile High Stadium where the Broncos play, and they're having this you know this huge rally, and people would get fired up about that. And I look back at it and there's kind of two things. One is it was incredibly shallow theologically. I think a lot of their heart was in the right place, but very shallow. And the second thing is I look back at those men who got real fired up for those ministries 
And I can't think of a single one who is like still sustaining themselves in the faith, continue to grow and mature past Mm -hmm. just, again, a a very Charles Finney revivalist type approach. Let's have a big tent meeting down at the stadium, get everybody fired up, and that's going to change the world. Um, So I do think, like Wild at Heart, it, it happened because of, I think, a lot of shallowness in the church. Um, but then it kind of like also why it wasn't dealt with and kind of hasn't been dealt with well by the church is, is sort of the same thing. Like you're going to have to get in there. You're going to have to get your hands dirty and do some robust teaching. And maybe this is what I thought, like go back to the drawing board and say, let's look at masculinity, like take every verse apart in scripture and like start Mm -hmm. like really digging into the text. Because as I found, I started doing that, like scripture actually has a lot, a lot to say. Uh, about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the 90s men's ministry was unique. It was pretty interesting. And there were a lot of guys that were, you know, they met Jesus and they were, it was an amazing, it was really interesting. Because, I mean, that Promise Keepers, like the first ever Promise Keepers had two or 3,000 people there. By the third year, they had something like 80,000. Right. Unbelievable growth, really, really quick. And so, you know, you have all these guys that are experiencing that that big revival kind of stuff. and then. You know, you're exactly what we're talking about. It just wasn't rooted, wasn't rooted in the scriptures. And so, you know, you have guys that weren't prepared to be able to raise up their children and the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You had guys that were able to tell their testimony, tell the ABCs of the faith, but they weren't able to train men or train their sons or daughters in what it actually means to be a human being. And so, you know, I think that you know, when you look at the Bible, one of the things that when I first got into complementarianism, which was like in the mid 2000s and it was I'm the dime a dozen guy that listened to Driscoll and you know heard Chandler got Andreas Kostenberger's book a God Marriage and Family because Driscoll told me to <laughs> I read recovering the role of biblical manhood and womanhood and you know got those books we're just steeped in complementarianism and one of the things that that I saw there and one of the reasons I think the church has been ill equipped for just a, a massive um you know, focus on, or just a a lack of focus on anthropology and a complete confusion about the image of God is because we abandoned, we didn't have a frame of reference for the law of nature. And you Mm -hmm. looked at first Corinthians 11 and the sermon series I preached a couple years ago at our church was rooted in, in uh, what nature itself teaches, teaches us about gender. And there's so much there in natural law that complementarians didn't ever talk about. They just didn't talk about it at all. It was all about order. It wasn't at at all about ability. And so we didn't have a, a good way. Complementarians still don't have a good way to talk about what are the real differences between men and women. I mean, actual differences between men and women. And th- these guys through the men's 90s ministry, they didn't have those categories either. Uh, no. I mean, they had things that they picked up from their, from their dad. And they weren't able to train up these millennials and this next generation that's, that's whatever they're called, or whatever, that are completely confused. And almost 30% of the women I saw an article floating around are, are, are saying that they're gay. And so... You don't have an understanding at all about the image of God, and complementarianism doesn't have a natural law backbone to be like, here's what a man is, here's what a woman is, and the scriptures are full of natural law. We just don't see it. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating point. So I was actually, yesterday I was reading a commentary, a couple of commentaries in uh, 1 Timothy and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but it's very interesting because the complementarians they get like very uncomfortable when Paul says things like, well, because Adam was created first, 
And they're like, well, it could be because men and women, I guess, could have different strengths and weaknesses. I guess. We're not sure. We're not saying women are dumb and men are smart. Please don't misunderstand. Like they're, they're very uncomfortable with even talking about natural law. Whereas Calvin, John Knox, mm-hmm. certainly Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, you can go back to Aristotle, right? These people talk like that all the time. Well, men and women have different natures, right? They're, they're created differently. And because of that creational difference, not cultural difference, but a creational difference, um, right. they're going to have different roles. Now, what's interesting about this, though, I think because Christians abandoned the natural law side of things, who took up the torch in culture for defending like sex differences if they did? Well, it was people like James Dobson and Jordan Peterson who rely very heavily on psychology. And so you need a psychologist to tell you things like men are physically stronger and more assertive than women. Like that's a duh statement. Mm -hmm. Like why do we need scientific research to remind us of what is clear? And again, Paul does this all the time. He'll just say something like, well, you know, a woman should have long hair. I mean, nature testifies to this, you know, right. He he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he doesn't, you know, take it apart. Well, studies have shown. And so now, you know, we, he's like, he just says, it's obvious nature teaches us. So maybe that was a big part of it, right? Is if you, if you lost the natural law side of things, which I think Christians really haven't been teaching, particularly related to gender role, it opened the door Mm -hmm. for psychology. So this is actually a segue. I I think a good segue to one of the biggest issues I have with the book which is the, the level to which John Eldridge relies on Freudian psychology and therapy, therapeutic approaches from the 60s and 70s, really, to address the, the issue with effeminacy. You said earlier, and, and maybe we'll connect these two things, but you said earlier that like, he's coming up with an effeminate solution to this problem. So just unpack that for me. Talk about this issue, yeah. what, what you see happening. Yeah, well, although John recognizes, he actually does recognize natural law. Like he, he, he states in several places, you know, God didn't create an asexual and as men and women as women. And he actually says some, some decent things about that. But in a lot of his answers, the, a lot of the answers, it, it, you can't distinguish between a women's Bible study and a men's Bible study. Like, for instance, talking about the father wound, everybody has it, or you have what it takes, or this idea of affirmation. He speaks a lot about affirmation. And I tell you what, we, we live in an affirmation-driven culture. Everybody is affirming everyone. My goodness. I mean, you can get affirmed for, any, I mean, for anything. I mean, go out anywhere you go, and that's the air we breathe is affirmation. And his, part of the big solution that he gives is that men need affirmation, that you do have what it takes. And I remember reading this when I first read it in like 2003, and even up to this day, and I wonder, like, what in the world does that mean? What do you mean right. I have what it takes? I, I don't understand it's almost like I needed exegesis from him about what do, you, what do you mean specifically? Is it that I think I don't have what it takes like to, like to tie my shoe or to get a job, to live life? What exactly are you saying that I don't have what it takes? And so a lot of his answers and how people received his answers is that men would get together and they would be in a room. They would be drinking coffee together. It'd be a face-to-face kind of meeting. And they'd be trying to figure out what their dad did. And I'm going back in the recesses of my mind to pray through and introspecting myself to death to find out what that father wound is. And then when I find out that father wound, I'm going to confess that to everybody. And it's going to be this big, huge revelatory moment to where I can finally get release and freedom 
and I can finally understand the nature of my good heart, which is his gospel. The gospel that John Eldridge presents is, it's a gospel of, of the regenerate heart, and the gospel is now that I have a good heart, and so I can trust my dreams, trust my plans, and to an extent, I understand what he's talking about, about being born again, but that's his gospel, and so if I can understand this father wound, I can really rediscover this good heart that I have, and I can walk in you know, obedience and Christ-likeness, it can finally be released from all the baggage that I have. And so it was very effeminate. You had guys just looking at each other and talking about their father wounds and hugging each other and then, you know, pounding their fists saying, I am a man, I have what it takes. And it ended up something that he wanted to be so authentic, becoming so unauthentic. And so I just think he gave effeminate answers and psychological answers for very masculine problems. And it just was not sustainable. Yeah, it's interesting too, because so I was a part of a couple of different churches where like this was not only wild at heart, but the pastor was like really big into this like psychology uh, approach. Um, and, and part of that was at Southern Seminary, at least at the time, uh, he doesn't teach there anymore, but there were kind of two camps. So you had the, the biblical counseling side, which was, of course, David Pallison and the CCEF guys, right. now ATBC. Um, the new Thetic approach, Jay Adams, that whole camp. Okay. But we also had like Eric Johnson right. in the heavy, heavy psychology side. So a lot of what it presented mm. was a lot of these men on the psychology side, like I felt like it was continually just what I would call rummaging around in people's hearts, like trying to discover in a very Freudian way, like trying to discover these hidden motivations and childhood desires and so on and so forth. And I mentioned this in my review of Wild at Heart that actually what was freeing for me was things that Elizabeth Elliot says all the time. Stop thinking about your feelings. You need to think about the promise and what God's called you to do and pray for strength to do it. That's it. <laughs> like full stop. And that is actually Amen. so much more freeing to me than, because I was doing the same thing. Like I went to one of these meetings and, you know, the pastor was like, well, how did your father hurt you? And I was like, uh, man, I don't, I don't really know. And they're like, well, that's because you're a poser. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, you know, I've, my life has actually been pretty decent. And they're like, no, you're hiding behind the false self. But deep down, you're a wounded man. And I was like, I don't understand what. And, and then what would happen is guys would literally be like, you know what? There was that Tuesday 50 years ago where my dad yeah. and I went for ice cream. And he said, I love you, but I just felt like he was not paying attention to me. You know, and then you're like manufacturing this whole, right. this whole thing. And even if it was true, I did actually have experiences in my childhood where, you know, my dad had said something to me and it was probably unsavory. Well, I, like I've since gone to my dad and be like, hey, that wasn't right. And he's like, you know what? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And I forgive him and we move on and I don't have to live like this wound is my defining marker. You, you know, right. like I feel like that's what John is doing. Um, and then what you talked about, this idea of the heart being good. So he's right to an extent that, that we're regenerate. I get that. But we still have sin. You're right. Like, and me focusing on my desires all the time is probably still not healthy. Even so, it just kind of breeds selfishness. That's kind of what I've, what I've seen. So the men who came out of these ministries, like it, was it, was it producing godly, healthy marriages, men? No, I, I didn't really see that. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot there. I think, um, you know, going back to uh, introspection, the wound, the psycho psychoanalysis, and uh, you know, listen, there there are things in that world that lead you to reject things that the scriptures clearly state. Okay, like uh, for instance. Um, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to the Lord and the peace of God, which passes all understandings will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Now, jumping your Elizabeth Elliot, when you mentioned her, I, it, it kind of took me back to this moment where I heard her talking about that verse. And right after Jim died, when hmm. her husband died, I guess in Ecuador or Peru, wherever it was that Jim Elliot died, her mother-in-law was saying to her, you've got to process this. You are not well. You've got to come back. You can't stay in this village. You've got to come back. You don't know the trauma you've gone through. And she wrote back to her and said, is not the peace of God that passes all understanding a reality? Because this is what God has said. I know this is where I need to be. And he has given me peace that passes all understanding. Now, in the world, the Christian psychology world, and I'm, I'm aware of the debate, and I, and I get the caricatures of both sides, but it leads people who are actually healthy who are actually obedient and walking with the Lord to question, my gosh, am I health? Man, there's this secret thing and there's some sort of skeleton in my closet that I've not discovered yet because everybody's here telling me I'm not being authentic and I'm just walking around in joy, loving the Lord, loving my family. And I guess I'm supposed to be, you know, walking in sorrow like Eeyore over here uh, because <laughs> of what my dad did to me, you know? Yeah, right. And, you know, to be honest, Eric, man, I've gone through some stuff with my dad. My dad is actually, um, a lot of people, not many people know this, but somebody, but my, my dad's actually in jail right now. And hmm. he uh, has dealt with mental health for several years. And I love my father and my dad is a shell of a man he used to be. And he's trying to do well. He's trying to get better. But uh, I tell you what, I could either wallow in sorrow about that. I could either, you know, as a man in my mid thirties, I'm almost in 40. I could either, you know, like go into introspection and say, okay, what do I got to do to not be there? Or it's uh, it's, it's Tuesday. I can do this interview with you, enjoy it, go upstairs afterwards, kiss my wife, about to have another baby. I've got two boys. I can enjoy my family and I can obey the Lord and honor him and by his grace, just walk in obedience. To or I can just wallow in sorrow about, you know, what my dad is or isn't doing right now for me or in his life. And so I think the whole, that, that whole system that he's presenting, it keeps people in a victim state of mind. It yep. keeps people wondering, like, what am I, what am I got to figure out that other people have, already, you know, I haven't figured it out yet, but they have. And again, it's effeminate answers for people could say, hey, listen, why don't you just honor the Lord and obey him today and, and trust him and do what you need to do today. And men weren't told that. They were given a mission of introspection. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic breakdown. And I think that's, that's exactly the issue um, with so much of the book. So, Jared, I, I want to ask you, too, so... You actually interviewed John Eldridge, and I want to know I first did. of all what, like, what brought that about? Was it easy to get a hold of him? Um, you know, what, 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 what was your interest in having him on your podcast? All right. Well, I had read, like I said, his book back in probably two thousand three or four, right when I went went away to school. I graduated in two thousand two, and a group of men at our church had been going through that book, and you know, I read it. I go to college. I go to Pentecostal Western College, and um, I put that book off the sh on the shelf and kind of walked away from that. And then when I became reformed in my soteriology and then later on becoming confessional, you put stuff like that on the shelf and you leave it on the shelf. You know, you don't go back to it. And then I was an associate pastor at a church and there was a guy there, a friend of mine that I love dearly. He, he has been a mentor to me 
and he loves German. And I, and I really appreciated this man. And so he was a friend of my father, had really invested in my father. And so I wanted to meet him where he was. And I, I thought, man, I've probably got some things to learn from this guy. And so he walked me through. We went through Wild at Heart. So I pulled that back off the shelf. And the things that were good in it, the things that were good in it as a pastor, I really enjoyed. And there's just something about it. I think you probably can get this. There's something about reading that book and why I interviewed him. And my, my listeners are almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively pastors. And I think there's something good in that book for pastors to read. I think it's good for pastors to read the book, not for the average pastor or not for the average church member. But there's something when you're reading that book where you're like, man, there's something to this. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about this that's drawn me in. Why? What the heck's going on here? Right. And, um, so I read, and then I read his book, Fathered by God, and I actually enjoyed that book more. And then I read his other works, and uh, they're just theologically, there's just so many things there that you have to overlook and that just, you know, sting when you read it. You're like, oh, John, why could you say that? Um, but as I read, I really enjoyed a lot of what I was reading. And so I, I reached out to him and, and wanted to interview him and talk to him about specifically his book, Fathered by God, because I think that's the most helpful book. Uh, and there is a lot of psychological stuff in there. There is a lot of, you know, that the moral ther- therapeutic deism kind of stuff. But um, he does track and, and put his finger on an issue of men. And as they develop, they're needing to be clear stages of masculine development and things that we need as boys and as men, as fathers along the way that can be helpers for us that have been seen in every society throughout the world. These, these high watermarks, these rites of passages. And so I read this book and just really enjoyed it. And so I wanted to talk to him and I reached out to him. It took me about a year to land the interview. And then if you, if, if anybody does go and listen to the interview at the end, I don't have him reference where to go and find more stuff or where, where they can, I, I can't, I can't remember exactly how I ended that, but I, I tried to encourage people to read like two of his works, Wild Heart and, and Father by God, but not the rest of the stuff. And, um, and so I was able to ask him specific theological questions, uh, ask him questions on justification. That was just um, you know, before the, I went on air, you know, do you believe in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in penal substitution? And it was yes, yes, because those, that, the emphasis of those things are just simply not there. It's just it's not there anywhere. And uh, so when you listen to that, I had a great time interviewing. And I think, honestly, I think there's a lot that, that people can get from listening to that interview uh, personally. I mean, I, that I took away from, from that interview. And so I wanted to talk to him because I think, honestly, Eric, here's the deal. If you were to ask the men you have learned from, in your local church or in your childhood, if you were to ask them to write a book, most of the men that we have learned from that God has discipled us through, if they were to write a book, it would be a theological train wreck. <laughs> I mean, it's probably one very of the true. Men that I, right. I mean, one of the men I learned from the most, uh, my friend, Kurt, if he was to write a book, it would be about the seven headed beast. It would be about, you know, these, <laughs> you know, demonic rulers of cities and regions. I mean, it would be like, really crazy. But you know what? I watched him watch his wife suffer through seven years of cancer and chemo mm-hmm. before she passed away. And I mm-hmm. watched them worship the Lord every single day through that. And so I want to learn everything I can from him, even though if he wrote a book, it'd be a train wreck. And that's the same thing. I have things to learn from John Eldridge. And I think that, I think your listeners, my listeners do, uh, you just got to be guarded. And I think there's a lot of stuff in Wild at Heart and Father by Good that Father by God that are, are good that, uh, that I've learned from. And so I wanted to talk to him and I did. It was a lot of. Yeah, that's awesome. I, and I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot that you can Uh, learn from. I think that, um, I'm always reminded, I know Alistair Begg says this. I don't know if it's his quote, but he always says that the best of men are men at best. 
So there's always going to be issues um, and we can still take things with discernment and learn in the areas where we can. One of the questions I want to ask you, I know that uh, you and I have talked about this before, but in terms of problematic theologies, maybe one of the ones that pains me the most is uh, John's view of revelation and how God speaks to us. So I want to ask you just to unpack that a little bit. Do you see the same problem and, and why, particularly pastorally, why is that bad if people come to you from your flock and they're like, God spoke to me today. Really? How did he speak to you? Well, he told me that I was Maximus. Like I know pastorally, my pastoral heart was like, oh no, not good. Right. So unpack that issue. Do you think it's an issue with John's stuff? Does it, and I'm curious too, I haven't read all his books. Does it show up elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, it shows up everywhere. And so I think this, again, is representative of pretty much all 90s men's ministry. <laughs> right. Um, it, and really, there's, there's categories of charismatics that um, there are charismatics who believe and affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, and they speak about the sufficiency of Scripture. And they say things like this. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. And they really mean it, and they really believe it. Um, then there's groups of charismatics that believe in this extra biblical revelation in such a way that they are more excited and they get more giddy and they think it's more supernatural to hear that supernatural word uh, that God told me on Maximus than they actually do the very words of God in the scriptures. And so, you know, a little, uh, my growing up, I grew up in a charismatic church and um, really thankful for a lot of the things that I learned. But I remember sitting down with my mom and dad who taught me the scriptures and my mom was the children's church director at our church and I love my mother. She is a godly woman. And uh, one time I asked her, I said, Mom, how does God speak? Because I'd heard about everybody around me was saying, you know, God told me and God spoke to me. And I just was always trying to hear the voice of God and wondered what in the world, how does that happen? And she explained something to me. I didn't, you know, really fully understand what she was talking about. But when she walked, the room, walked through the room, I picked up the Bible that my parents gave me, that they, that they gave me. And I turned to Hebrews and I just did one of those flip things, you know, where you just like, Flip open your Bible, and uh, and I opened to Hebrews chapter one, and here's what my eyes turn to. Okay, in the beginning, uh, long ago, at many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And you know, as like a little boy, like a six year old, all you hear is spoke. You know, like oh wait a minute, spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed as the heir of all things, through whom He has also created the world. And that day, it dawned on me. Wait a minute, God has spoken in His Word. Hmm. And he's here speaking to me in his word. And so really for me, coming out of a charismatic church, and I think, um, and this is representative in his works, what, was, what people got more giddy about was the subjective word. That's what they got most excited about, to the point that it was a huge revelation to me that the Bible is actually God's written word. And oh my mm. gosh, these are actually the words of God. Wow. And so when I thought about hearing God speak, I immediately went to extra biblical sources. I immediately went to that impulse that you got from movies, which is exactly where where John goes to. And so that is a problem when you lead a group of people into thinking that it's more supernatural, it's more special, it's more personal. When I hear that subjective word, then when I get to stand or when I get to open my Bible every single morning and actually hear the words of God. And so for me, that's been a wonderful discovery. I mean, it's been a discovery for me to see that my Bible is God's actual word. And so when I stand up to preach and I say that, that, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, this is the word of God and say, we're about to hear from God this morning. I want to make that in such a way that our people 
are knowing the significance of the moment. And so mm-hmm. that, that's what he does time and time again, man. I mean, Eric, you, you read the book and it's representative everywhere where what he gets really giddy about, you see, is not quoting scriptures in the Bible. You know, at the very beginning, he's like, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. He gets very excited about quoting that. But what's really special to him isn't coming from the scriptures. It's, it's you know, movie quotes. <laughs> it's it's uh, your Maximus, that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, man, I think it's a huge problem. If people came to our church, like we're more excited about a subjective word, I would say, you know what, I'm praise God that you're sensing, you know, you know, uh, that you're sensitive to wanting to honor God and wanting to hear his voice. But let me just tell you a better way. <laughs> Let, right. Op- open your Bible and hear from God. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, I really, I did. I, I was thinking like, he says, I'm Henry V. And I was like, that sounds like you talking to you. I mean, I don't know. And so I, I'm a little bit of the same background. I, we grew up in some very charismatic churches. Um, I remember, for instance, going to a church as a kid. We went there for maybe two years, mainly my mom and I. And um, like the pastor told us, he's like, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So I would go home and I would jibber jabber. I don't, you know, because I was like, well, I'm not saved otherwise. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly understand that. I think part of my distaste for it is also actually that that's the environment that I grew up in where you're always looking for this special revelation. And if you don't get it, you're, you know, oh my gosh, I must not be following right. God. Um, but it also leads to a lot of weird theological problems, a lot of instability, um, always trying yeah. to read tea leaves. Um, I always think of, um, it's, I think it's the island of Malta where Paul gets bit by the snake. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Paul gets bit by the snake. And what's interesting about this is, oh, he must be a criminal. Like they're just trying to read the tea leaves. Like that's what pagan religion does is like something bad happens to you. You must be bad. Um, and of course that's not the case at all, mm-hmm. but, but it, it makes for an unstable life um, to always be needing a special word, yeah. needing special revelation. Um, and as I mentioned in the show, like, uh, Bill Smith, pastor Bill was huge in my life and just saying, you know how you feel right now. doesn't matter. What matters is what God says about yeah. you in his word. And that's, that's freeing. That needs to be, that needs to be your focal point. Yeah. And so, okay. Going back to stuff that I mentioned just in passing earlier about this, uh, this idea of, of adoption and justification and why they're both so important. Yeah. So the charismatic world and John Eldridge talks a lot, a lot about this, about sonship, you know, we're sons of the most high God. We're the King's men, you know, I'm, I'm a King's kid and, you know, getting your name from your father and, you know, you know, Jesus even needed this affirming word, you know, you're my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Just the charismatic world is regularly, man. I mean, everywhere I went in Pentecostal church, I went to Pentecostal college. They're, always talking about adoption. Interesting. Problem. They, yeah, they were always talking about adoption, always talking about being sons of God, but they had no foundation for justification, none huh. whatsoever. And so their, stand, their justification was their relationship with God, their relationship with their father. And so if they got a subjective word, they felt like they were safe. They felt like they were forgiven. If it felt like a season where their prayer was hitting the ceiling, well, then no foundation and they were in turmoil. I had no peace with God. I was afraid if I lost my salvation. And so they get adoption, but don't understand justification. And that's, that's Eldridge's error as well. Yeah. Now, on the flip side of that, the reform world, one of the things that I've seen, especially, man, when like imputation is like the, I mean, it's the gateway drug, man, into <laughs> just beautiful and rich theology. And uh, so I, I got into imputation and I didn't have categories for the discipline of the Lord then where I didn't, I actually didn't understand 
adoption because I was so much into justification that I didn't understand that I was justified to be adopted in Galatians, um, that I was justified to be brought into the family of God. And when you have them both, you got this beautiful picture. And this is what this is not absolutely and definitively not in Wild at Heart or any of his books. You get this amazing thing where you, you know that that the discipline of the Lord is there and it's not punitive because I'm firm in my justification. But I'm not so locked into my justification that I don't understand that I have a heavenly father who takes care of me and that I love him and I want to please him. That he actually does not only see the life of Christ, but he also sees my life. And he, even though he sees my imputation, he sees my sin and he disciplines me as a son. And so if you, if you have one without the other in the reform world, I've seen a lot of people who don't understand adoption and they only think in this stoic, you know, kind of relationship that's static with their heavenly father where they, well, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me and they don't understand the discipline work of the father. How can I live to please him? And they think that's some sort of legalism, you know, living to please our fathers legalistic, you know, especially in like the Lutheran world. My gosh, that's like, you know, least living to please your fathers. You might as well be a Pharisee or something. But uh, so these two things are, are, are so crucial. And so he leans heavily into what I see other charismatic lean to. Just the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God, the adoption of sons, but no foundation for justification whatsoever. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I do think that that puts all the weight on these experiences. Um, oh, yeah. These encounters with God, like you said, your relationship. And, and I mean, I would, I'd be like, back in the day, it was like, if I didn't have like a quiet time where I was like, oh, I felt God moving and da, da, da. I'd be like, oh, God and I aren't good. What am I doing? Like, I've screwed everything up. <laughs> Worship was that way. Yeah. You know, like if I wasn't having this overflowing, emotional, hands raised, tears coming out of the eyes type experience in worship, I felt like somehow I was failing God or we must, you know, we must be so distant that, um, you know, there's something wrong with that relationship. It just puts so much weight on like very subjective categories, like my feelings, my desires, my emotions yeah. at that time. Yeah, which is the 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 relationship side of things, you know, with, with the 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 logo or the the lingo that goes around. You know, Christianity is not a religion; religion it's a relationship. And then right. it's like, well, well, man, that's a, that's relationship is another category of justification. And so, <laughs> yeah. how well is your relationship today? Okay, is your relationship with him good today, or is it bad today? And it turns into the exact same sort of Pharisaicalism that you're trying to avoid, and that people who run in the Eldred stream want to avoid which is like, you know, the, the, almost like the church is bad. We don't want to get theological here. We just have a relationship. And it's like, well, man, that's, that's your justification. And that's a really faulty justification. Yeah. No, it's very true. Um, one of the last things I want, I want to talk about in terms of, you know, what man can take away from this book. Because I think, right, there were a lot of guys who read it and were like, okay, I see some problems. But he was kind of, John was one of the few people I think addressing, especially the effeminacy issue. So as you look at the landscape, you've talked about mm -hmm. books that you would recommend. What are some different areas that you would point people um, in terms of reading material and ways that they could grow in their masculinity? Well, fortunately, right now, so man, I, I was off Twitter for a couple of years, year and a half or so. And in that year and a half, I mean, like the, the manosphere, the Twitter, I mean, it just exploded. And recently, I got back on Twitter and it's been a lot of fun following people like yourself and Michael Foster and our mutual buddy, Brian Sauvey. We've been buddies for a yeah. couple of years now. And, and I tell you what, there, there are people are turning the internet because there's not a lot of good resources for men still 
like right now, there's not a lot of great books that I can say, okay, here's, you know, the masculine mandate is a really good work exploring work and keep. And it's, it's one of the better resources out there, but it doesn't tap into some of these things that actually Eldridge taps into. I mean, it's, that's good. And so I tell you what, um, although there are a lot of things to avoid, I would keep looking to and encourage guys to get into, um, you know, reading some of the stuff, even that's coming out of the Aaron Wren, uh, and that whole, uh, article of the four, four part, part article that Bill Smith was a part of that, uh, Paul Maxwell, I still got to put my finger on Paul Maxwell. He's kind of a long <laughs> card, but, um, but a lot of the guys right now on Twitter, like yourself, like, uh, Michael Foster, and it's good to be a man. And that, those are, that's where I'm pointing guys to go to go. Cause there's not a ton. There really isn't a ton of resources exploring natural law and its implications in the daily life as a man. And so right now I think there's a treasure trove to discover for men who are diving into and for, for pastors who are diving into natural law and saying, hey, what are the implications of this in all of life? And so right now, there's, there's really a few places. There's not many places that I'm pointing guys to. Yeah, I think it's um, – I can think of a, maybe a couple of reasons why that is, but I think you're absolutely right. I've even asked some older pastors, um, you know, in terms of like talking to Toby Sumter and Chris Wiley about this, but saying like, okay, point me to the works that defend like biblical patriarchy. Point me to the works that defend like biblical masculinity. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the reason those works don't exist is because it's been the historical position for so long. And for a long time, there maybe wasn't as mm-hmm. much of a need to like go to the bedrock and define the issues. But I think now there, there really is. And I, I think, and this is what I've been praying, is that those issues, it's like new country to explore. You know, that's kind of how I think about it. Um, we're like, re- and, and as, as always, faithful Reformed Christianity is about, you know, redigging the wells of Abraham. So we're rediscovering things that are old. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I, uh, I'll make one recommendation. Uh, I have a, a friend on Facebook. I do not, I didn't know him until recently. He contacted me. His name is Zachary Garris. And uh, he said, hey, I just wrote a book okay. about these subjects. You might be interested. And uh, the book title is uh, Masculine Christianity. And I told, I called him and I told him, I was like, man, I got your book. And I was like, I bet this is so horrible. Like, and <laughs> because like in the, in the media world, people send me books all the time and they're used 99% of the time. It's like garbage that some dude wrote in a prison cell, you know? Right. And, um, but anyway, I opened this book and I was like, this is unbelievable. Like he's, he goes through the history of complementarianism. He goes through mm. biblical patriarchy. He breaks down the Carl Truman stuff. Uh, he walks through almost every single passage from Genesis to 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, in, in a way that even if you don't agree, it's very helpful information mm-hmm. on the commentaries and the history. Um, so I recommend that. Um, and I'll be doing some more uh, with Zach, uh, an interview and then uh, reviewing the book on here. But Man, I, I was blown away. Um, it's mm. a really helpful resource. He's quoting a lot of John Knox. Um, things like, you know, John Knox wrote a book about like why it's a travesty that men should take marching orders from women. Um, and it was aimed yeah. at largely, I think, at Mary Queen of Scots, but mm-hmm. um, very prescient. Um, Calvin, Matthew Henry, they have, actually have a lot to say on these issues. Um, so very helpful. I'll provide a link for that in the show notes. So is that, yeah, I was going to ask you, sorry for interrupting there, but is that a PDF or is that some somewhere, you know, link in? Cause I'd love to read 
love to see it. Yeah. So, um, I'll provide the link for his website. Um, but no, he actually, he started a publishing company so that he could self-publish. It, it's really interesting because he's a RTS grad and, um, okay. and he's also a lawyer. And I was reading through this and I told him, I was like, your arguments are like airtight, but they're also really easy to understand. Um, and it was really helpful. So I think mm. for me, working in the Manosphere space, this book is basically like Zach's book is like Piper and Grudem's book, except on the biblical patriarchy side. Like it really just gives you good foundations for maybe things that in my life, I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel this way. And I see some scripture here and there, but nobody's given like a full length treatment on it. Yeah, man, that's, that's really cool. And I would plug real quick for, for your listeners too, that one of the things I've appreciated about the biblical patriarchy, um, you know, vision really is just taking scriptures for what they are, what they say without being apologetic. And, and the Bible prescribes and prohibits men to do certain things and from not doing certain things. And the Bible prescribes and prohibits women from doing certain things and commissions them to do certain things. And here, what's the big deal about God commissioning and prohibiting us? Our response should be, okay, let's do that. And the people who are saying, okay, let's do that, are in this biblical patriarchy camp, both the men and the women. And what complementarians are doing right now are they're apologizing for everything and they're minimizing and they're not saying clearly what God says clearly. They're just embarrassed. And, and you know, I don't, want, I don't want the men in our church, the women in our church, to be embarrassed, and nor should anybody. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge issue. Um, Zach talks a lot about that in the book, particularly with passage like <laughs> when Paul says that women will be saved through child rearing. Um, like he, Zach says, he goes, the word is actually salvation. Um, it's not justification, mm-hmm. but it is in the picture of salvation as a whole in particularly in sanctification, that the normative way a woman is going to be saved is through this process, this sanctifying process of being in the home and rearing children. And as he says in there, he's like, actually, the text is crystal clear. The problem is we don't like it. And mm-hmm. the complementarians want to apologize for it in a culture that thinks, every time I say that stuff, you know, people on Twitter are like, oh, you knuckle dragon idiot. I can't believe you're still living in a cave, blah, blah, blah. It's like the, the text is actually clear. And so you, what happens is you have a lot of these commentators who, you know, are introducing a lot of the gymnastics. Well, you know, head could mean source. Um, you right. know, a lot of those arguments. And it's like that passage is so clearly about authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we don't, we just don't want to see it. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, and that's, yeah, liberalism starts with embarrassment. <laughs> It doesn't start with outright. It just starts with being embarrassed about specific passages. And so long before the PC, PC USA, it it always just starts with embarrassment. So what text are you embarrassed about? And that's where Mm. liberalism begins. Wow. That is a phenomenal point. Well, Jared, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope at the very least it whets people's appetite to not only to look at the review on wild at heart, maybe consider some of those things, maybe check out father by God. But as well to check out your stuff because it really is helpful. It's very good. Um, just one more time, where can people find your material? Are you on Twitter now? Yeah, I was convinced to jump back on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter. I think it's just, I think it's the, at the Shepherd's Crook uh, 
one, the number one. I don't think there's an underscore yep. or anything. So just the Shepherd's Crook one and at the shepherdscrook.co. And then you can also just, you know, search the podcast for any, you know, podcast platform and find it. And uh, man, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun and, and keep doing what you're doing, man. Press on because you're doing a lot of good stuff. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. And again, for all our listeners, check out Jared Sparks. That is the Shepherd's Crook. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, and act like men.